Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I must repel an almost overwhelming compulsion to stop and say something nice about so many people that I know in this audience tonight, that I've known from years past, who have, many of them, made indelible impressions upon my mind, and who have benefited my course of activities in so many different ways, and I appreciate that so much. Words, you know, are just like money. They have values. And some words are like penny words, and some words are worth a lot. The word family comes to my mind tonight. There is in this assembly a kind of warmth that is just worth coddling. It just makes you feel good to be here. Not just the fact that we are here to serve God, that is obvious, but what we do when we serve God is that we bring to ourselves such joy and such pleasure that it all bleeds together so that the serving of joy is the serving of God and the serving of God is the serving of joy. And so I thank you for warming the coddles, coddles of an old West Texas boy's heart. It's good to see all of you. I, I am going to one of these days... Uh, do a sermon where I just single people out in the audience and tell you about the good character. That'd make a good sermon, I think. Thank you for coming. I want to read with you tonight to begin from Romans, the first chapter. And I shall begin reading in verse 14. Here the Apostle Paul, by the afflatus of the Holy Spirit, said, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath shown it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginings, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause... God gave them up into vile affections, for even their women did change their natural use into that which is against nature, 
And likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one to another, men working with men that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Culture is little more than humanity at work. Where there are people, there is politics. Where there is politics, there is culture. We, in this age are witnessing a culture that is descending rapidly into the pit of putridity. One has but to drive down the road and look at the billboards, use the flipper on the television to dash past various and sundry things, read the newspaper, glance casually at the 7-Eleven newsstand to see that our society is affecting us more than we're affecting our society. It has always been the case that one of two things is so. The church, the people of God, either affects the society or the society affects the church. In our age, we are being immersed in the culture. I don't know whether you've noticed this or not, but religion in general has been swallowed up by culture. The religious people who just introduced the organ into the services originally, without any dictation from the Scripture, has now descended to where it emulates the symphony orchestra. Or, in many instances, they have Christian rock. In many instances, I've dialed past some religious services that were having religious dancing that looks not unlike the rest of the dances performed by people who are gyrating in ungodly and despicable fashion. And so we are living in a world that has diminished into decadence. We're living in a world that is fitly described by Romans, the first chapter. There are other chapters that are every bit as descriptive as is this one, but I doubt that there's a chapter anywhere that more aptly describes our generation than does Romans, the first chapter, beginning in these verses. And I want to suggest to you that we need to be very careful that we are not completely immersed in this ourselves. Churches of Christ in many places have secularized their religion. They're having choirs 
They're having special programs. They're having religious narrative services and theatrical productions. They're doing many of the things that the denominational people are doing. They're offering what is called religious feminism. And it's not a thing in the world but secular feminism in a disguised fashion where women are waiting on the table and making announcements and then occupying positions that were never intended for that purpose by God. And so it's just filtering in. And we will be naive, ladies and gentlemen, if we do not consider the possibility that it can happen to us. One of the ways that it happens is we adopt the attitudes without adopting the actual things. We must be very careful of that. I want to talk with you tonight about where it all begins. It all begins with persons. It doesn't begin with movements. Movements come out of people. People make politics, and politics makes movements. But the fact of the matter is it starts with people. And if we're going to change society, if we're going to guard culture, we must be exemplary. We must replicate in our lives what Jesus Christ was, what He expects us to be, and what we can become if we have an intimate familiarity with the Word of God. Let's talk, first of all, about what we're really all about. Man is what is called a free moral agent. When we say he is free, I simply mean that he acts of his own disposition, of his own inclination, of his own purpose. When I say that he is a free moral agent, I'm saying to you that he acts in regard to morality. He makes certain choices, wise choices we hope, that come as a result of weighing a situation and deciding what he's going to do for himself. There are two wills involved with mankind. There is the will of God and the will of man. God will not allow man to impose his will upon God. But God, by the same token, will not impose his will upon mankind. Mankind is a free moral agent. He is an agent in the sense that he is empowered to act. Now, all of that is made possible by man's consciousness. Consciousness is, is the mind in the act of knowing itself. And what it is in consciousness is the management of one's senses. Man is not aware of his senses. Touch, taste, feel, hear those things. If he is not conscious. But when he is conscious, he is aware of his senses. And the management of those senses is what makes man a free moral agent. He manages those senses in regard to how he wants them to wants to react to those senses, to those impulses that are caused by his senses. And that's where sensualism comes into play. Sensualism is a mismanagement of those senses. May I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that the devil is interested in our inclinations. Furthermore, the devil plays with our proclivities. The devil, please be advised, fondles our senses. Senses are any of the faculties by which stimuli are felt and used. Dogs don't have senses like 
people do. Dogs and cats and vegetables and the cosmos in general acts under a law of necessity. If I'm having steak and Brother Edwin's dog comes over and steals my steak off the grill, I call the cops and I have the dog arrested, right? No, I may have Edwin arrested for letting his dog out like that, but the dog is merely reacting to a law of necessity. When he is stimulated by the succulent smell of that steak on the grill, he's going to find that succulent goodness as quickly as he can. His mouth waters on purpose. He does what he's stimulated to do. Man is not that way. The senses are the faculties of sensation as a means of providing satisfaction that is physical, pleasure that is fleshly. We need to remember that. I don't expect you to remember that definition. But I do want you to know that senses are what make us what we are. Now, the question is, will we manage our senses or will our senses manage us? When our senses come to manage us, then we become immersed in sensualism. When I was preparing this material... It suddenly it occurs to me that while senses are physical, we use them autonomously and metaphorically uh, to describe a lot of different things. For instance, we say, I don't see that. Now, we're not talking about physical sight there, but we're using physical sight to give an illustrative look at what we're saying when we don't understand. And so we say, I don't see that, my friend Ed Harrell had a college professor he was trying to convert. And uh, he worked with him and worked with him. And every time he would bring up something biblical, this guy would say, well, I just don't see that. And he did that for months. And Ed would tell you, I can still see him brushing his hair out of his face and saying to you, I figured out finally, folks, what was the problem? He didn't see it. And <laughs> that's the way that is. What that's saying is, in this instance, he didn't want to see it. But seeing it, see, is a metaphorical description. I was driving down the street uh, just the other day, and I saw another one that, that speaks graphically to what I'm saying. Uh, there was a sticker on the back of a car, and it said, Gas prices stink. Well, prices don't stink. But we're using the metaphor to describe that with our sense of smell. We say that poem has a touch of genius that attaches to it. That's the same kind of an idea. I said it, but he didn't hear it. He didn't understand. There was no perception on his part. That's a testy, that's a tasty, rather, piece of music. I, I like uh, B.G. Adair very much, the pianist. And his kin to your Adairs. She plays very tasty piano. Now, I've said all that to say that sensualism is a mismanagement of all of those things, both metaphorically and physically. It means devoted to sensual gratification, to sensical things. Sensualism has a relation to other carnal propensities. For instance, it is kin to secularism. It is kin also to hedonism. It is kin to animalism, and it is kin to rationalism. Most modern sensualism 
is perhaps an extension of the doctrine of rationalism or naturalism, which is so popular among the intellectuals. In both these philosophies, reason replaces revelation. Please fix that in your mind. In sensualism, reason replaces revelation. Perhaps the best biblical definition of that is found in the passage which we just read in your hearing. I want you to look at three different things in that passage quickly to see that we're on the path that we want to follow. He says, first of all, in verse 24, they change, verse 23, they change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. If there ever was a society given to idolatry, it's not the Baalites. It's the American populace in this age. Covetousness is the biggest idol that ever reared its head. And it is said in Colossians chapter 3 to be idolatry. Now, I want you to notice what happens when you give yourself over to those things. It says, wherefore God also gave them up. People can get to the point to where God gives them up to their uncleanness. We can reach that point. I'm not sure, nor would I affirm with any degree of certainty, that we have reached that point. But I am here to tell you that we're headed headlong into that pit. We're headed as directly as we can go into the idea of God giving us up to uncleanness. This is said three times in this passage. Look again as we go along. For this cause God gave them up to vile affections, for even the women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. Has that happened in this age? It certainly has. Look how he describes it. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lusts one toward another, men working with men that which is unseemly, receiving themselves the recompense of reward which was meet. The natural use of the body is one man for one woman for life. Not, mind you, one man for one man or one woman for one woman, but one man for one woman for life. We see none of that. We see, well, we don't see, we see the opposite of that in many cases. We see religious groups trying to, to, to legitimize. Even with the Scriptures, I heard it on the news even today, people try to use the Scriptures to legitimize homosexuality. It cannot be. It cannot be. And he says God gave them up. We're headed that way, folks. I noticed in the news today that New Jersey is about to vote on whether or not it's legitimate. Whatever happened to God? Whatever happened to the Scriptures? Why does nobody read? I saw two clergymen in the news today on U.S. World, in the U.S. News Report. And they're trying to get everything worked out. Both of them are priests, and they're trying to get it worked out where the church will approve of their inordinate marriage. Where are we, folks? I'll tell you where we are. We're a people not speaking up. We've got to do it. We've got to say, I believe that homosexuality is a violation of the Bible. That does not indict you. It indicts the Bible. It says, go with me to the book and let's read it. Why can't we do that? We have to do that. We must do that. We must do that in deference to our children, our children's children. I'm not married. I'm not worried about this generation. I think this generation has come about as far as it's going to go. But what I see is the inclination. Listen, did you ever wonder why the Scripture says, and I'm quoting when I say this, Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom. Why does it say that? 
Because it was a step in the wrong direction. Because he was headed toward trouble. It wasn't long until he crossed the city limits. It was not long after that that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by God because of their filthy inclinations. Because of their dispositions to, get to, to unnaturalness. God gave them up. Even as God, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, verse 28, God gave them up to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. We live in such a conflictory society. We save whales and kill millions of babies every year. It makes no sense. We will go out of our way to not step on a bug and we will kill an unborn fetus. It makes no sense. That's doing whatever you want to do. And it's based upon a reprobate, unprincipled mind. That's what that says. Sensualism abounds. Sexual satisfactions without restraint in this age. People that are the most popular people have done disdain, have repudiated, in fact, marriage. They think they can just do however many they want. What happened to the Bible? What happened to Deuteronomy? Bring the book. What happened to that? Bring the book. Let's see what the book says. It's the guidebook for mankind's real character development. And we cannot develop the character of the new man that God explains to us until such a time as we have a knowledge of it. And when we wander away from it just a step or two, the first thing you know we're going off a little bit further. We begin to rationalize. Pornography, ladies and gentlemen, is one of the single biggest businesses in this country today. It is amazing at how much money is made in pornography. Are you aware that more money is made in pornography every year than is made by ABC, NBC, and CBS put together? That scares me to death. It's awful. And what's the problem? Nobody brought the book. Nobody said, let's look in the Bible. Nobody pays any attention to it. I'm afraid we don't pay enough attention to it to people. We don't open it up to somebody. We just say, I believe that's wrong. Open the book. Read Romans, the first chapter. Let them see where they're going. It's a mirror. It's a mirror of where exactly we are and where we're headed. Pornography. Huge problem. I tell this when I preach about good homes in the wicked world that I think I probably did at Dixon when I was there. Some of my friends here from there, probably Shannon's heard that. I was preaching in Arkansas. And I had some things to say about pornography. And a little old lady came to me after it was over and she said, I'll tell you one thing, Brother Bowman. We ain't going to have none of that pornography at my house. She said, we ain't even got a pornograph to play it on. <laughs> now, I made that up, but it sure does work good. Doesn't it? That's how much we ought to know about it, folks. I don't mind telling you I'm afraid. And I'm not afraid just because of the culture. Because I must tell you that we've always been in the minority. We've always been no more than a remnant. But I'm afraid for the remnant. I'm afraid for what we'll have in the next generation. 
We must build bridges, folks, for those that are coming after us. They must walk across the tide too. And when it comes theirs to walk across, we need something for them to have. We must give our young people their own faith. They cannot go to heaven on our faith. We have to tell them what they need to know. And in order to do that, we have to bring the book. That's what he said. Bring the book and let's look at it. Bring us back to the law, he said. Nehemiah Bring the book. In 1 John chapter 2, I want to cite a familiar passage, and as I did yesterday with the passage that is so familiar, I want you to listen to it carefully. He says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Now stop and think about what that means. It says, don't give your sensical feelings to the world. Don't fall in love with the world. When we love something, I love tennis, we're going to play tennis. When we love somebody, we want to be near that somebody. If we have an affectionate feeling for some kind of philosophy, we're going to stay close to that philosophy. If we love golf, we're not going to take tennis magazines. We'll take golf magazines because we love golf. And if we love the world, we will be close to the world. And we must come out from among them and be ye separate and touch not the unclean thing. He says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Then he says, the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh, ladies and gentlemen, looks for things to satisfy it. The flesh looks for that which will make the flesh happy. That's what causes pornography. That's what causes adultery. That's what causes a multitude of other things. It's not proper management of our senses that get us in that trouble. Sensualism just is unbound sexual immorality. The most sexual satisfying thing in this life is sexual intercourse, I presume. That is natural. When it's satisfied within the confines of the marriage relationship, it is a beautiful intercourse. But when one comes to just satisfy the flesh without the attachment intellectually, without the oneness that exists when you come together and you are made one in the marriage relationship, then you pollute the use of the sexual relationship. The flesh then looks for things to satisfy it without regard to who it hurts without regard to restraints of any sort of kind. The eyes, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. The eyes look for what is pleasing without restraint. Then he says pride. Personal pride looks for some gratification without restraint. And I'll tell you how it does it. It more often says, I'm important. I'm important. In my lifetime... I've watched, because I love communication, it's my field, it's where I did my college work, I love to watch how it has evolved. When I owned a radio station many years ago, if you said one of the words that is said on the air today with reckless abandon, they would padlock your door without a trial. 
That's how serious it was in that time. And, and I've watched it deteriorate. One of the things I've watched in deterioration is titles and magazines. We started out with things like Saturday Evening Post. Now, now that has a certain kind of family feel to it, doesn't it? And then there was Look Magazine. And then we went to People. And then I saw a magazine the other day that was called Self. I looked very soon to see a magazine that says Me. Let me describe for you the largest idol that is being worshipped today in a covetous kind of way. It begins at the bottom and it's a triangle. It's myself, mine, me, I at the top. That's our idol. We dress it. We educate it. We make it functional so that we can have pleasure rather than so that we can serve mankind. Greater love hath no man than he lay down his life for his friend. And I'm saying to you that that incorporates the idea of giving yourself to people. The human psyche functions at the peak level of its efficiency. Not when it's focused on myself, mine, me, and I, but when it deliberately, of its own free will, manages those inclinations to do otherwise and stops and puts itself at the disposal of somebody who doesn't even deserve it. Let me say to you that agapeo love is seen in that concept. Agapeo love. The high love. God so loved. That's the world, agapeo. That love seeks the best interests of the object and the affection, no matter if there's any reciprocity. No matter if the person deserves it. That isn't the point. You do it because it's high and noble and intellectually right, because it is a spiritual enterprise of the very highest sort. And so... Pride likes nothing better than throwing off the shackles of restraint. Self-worship in its highest place. It seems to me, and I offer this only as an opinion or an observation, that there are three predicates on which this nasty, filthy sensualism rests. They are, first of all, extreme subjectivism. We live in a world today, folks, where there's no such thing as all scriptures given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that a man of God might be completely furnished unto every good work. Nobody knows what that is. Nobody. And the reason they don't know is because it is antithetical to subjectivism. Those two things are mutually exclusive. They cannot exist on the same, on the same track. Objective truth has no place in our society. Intellectualism in general has rejected the idea of there being a definitive body of truth that is right and cannot be wrong. They will, they completely ignore that. Subjectivism and you understand subjectivism? Subjectivism is where you are the final decision. 
whatever you think is what the truth is, and as long as I don't militate against your rights, then I'm okay. Whatever's right is right. And whatever's wrong is wrong. And it's right because I think it is, and it's wrong because I think it is. And that's the only, that's the only rule of faith and practice. And if you think that has not found its way into religion, listen to this little slogan. It makes no difference what you believe, just as long as you're honest and sincere. That's religious subjectivism. That's all that is. It denies that there is an objective truth. And so to excuse our methods of planning, we get involved in extreme subjectivism, which leads to, sequentially, don't be afraid of that word, it just means one thing following another, Extreme subjectivism, to excuse our methods of planning, leads to, naturally, inordinate individualism. That is, we excuse our behavior based upon the fact that I have certain rights, and you have no right to intrude on my rights. And I am wont to say to that that we're more interested in this society in our rights than we are our wrongs. Nobody does anything wrong. There isn't any such thing as wrong unless it intrudes on my privacy. Inordinate individualism then leads to radical justification, which simply says we rid ourselves of our own guilt by forgiving ourselves. Who is that pompous? Can you tell me that? You can't forgive yourself. You have no power to do that. There is no river that you can ford, no mountain you can climb by which you can earn your forgiveness. It is not possible. So, the question remains, are we to manage our senses? Are our senses going to manage us? How do we deal with sensuality in the midst of our carnal society? The, speak, the Scriptures speak with clarity concerning the proper management. I want you to turn to Colossians in the first chapter, uh, the third chapter, please. Colossians chapter 3. Let's read. You will notice that I'm not afraid to read long passages. Paul said to the young preacher, and I'm going to charge you for this, this is a little extra here. Paul said to the young preacher, give attendance to reading. That, and that word means public reading. We don't read the Scriptures enough. Out loud. At home, we don't read it out loud enough. If all of us read the Scriptures and prayed, like uh, uh, if, if Daniel had prayed like we prayed, he never would have got caught. And the Ethiopian noblemen would never have anybody to teach him. Both of them were praying out loud and reading out loud. And I'm saying to you that you have an intimate, a more intimate association with the Word when you read it out loud. You need to say your, you need to hear yourself, ladies. You need to hear yourself say Jesus' name. You need to hear what God says to you. And you need to read it out loud. Now then, I'm through preaching on that and I'll get back to my point now. In Colossians chapter 3, he says, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth. Stop, please. If you then be risen with Christ, seek, and that word seek there in the Greek doesn't mean look for. It means diligently seek. 
seek those things which are above the spiritual things. Where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. I'm pretty sure it's spiritual because that's where Christ is, isn't it? Okay. He says, set your affection. And I want you to notice, he says, set your mind. Set your mind. Where do you think we get the word settle? Settle. Settle your mind. Set your mind on, a, on set your affection on things on uh, above and not on things on the earth. Now, now let me ask you a question. Do you, do you have your mind set on some things on the earth? Boy, the, the devil knows what he's doing. You know that? He makes us think more about our houses and our landscaping than we do about landscaping our soul and living in the mansions that God's prepared. He makes us think more about investing in our portfolio than we do about investing in our real future, the one that will be lasting. Set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth. For ye are dead. You're separated. And your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. You have a higher mission. Mortify, put to death your members which are upon the earth. Listen to what he talks about. It's the same thing as in Romans chapter 1. He first gives the sensual things, the sexually things, the, the things that have to do with fleshly things, and then he comes to covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. That's the same thing he said to the Corinthians. Then he said, in the which also you walked sometime when you lived in them, but now you put off all these. And then he starts talking about sins of the mind. And that's anger and wrath and malice and filthy communication and blasphemy and lying. And then he says, put on the new man. First of all, he says, put off the bad. Then he says, put on the good. Do you know what that's saying? Control your senses. Control yourself. Make sure that you have yourself in tow. Make sure that you're the manager, that you have reins on your desires, on your fleshly proclivities. Now look to Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. He says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of his flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. That is an interminable, immutable, unchangeable, irrevocable principle. It's not going to change. When you put your investment, and that's what sowing is here, when you put your investment in fleshly things, it is axiomatic that you will reap fleshly results. Conversely, when you invest with diligence, with hope, with thankfulness for the grace of God, in those things that have spiritual implications, you are investing in eternity. That is important. I see people 
go back to churches where I preach meetings. I see people when I get up to preach and they're looking at me and I can tell just as well what they're saying is thinking as, as anything. They're saying, man, he looks different. He used to have a shock of black hair. Look at him now. He used to have a nice physique. Look at him now. I know what they're thinking. They're thinking, boy, you don't look like you used to. Neither do you. <laughs> Did you ever think about that? Neither do you. I tell you where we're headed, folks. We're headed down the trail to nothingness if we've invested in this life and that's all. If in this world in Christ we have hope, we are of all men most miserable because that hope is just going to terminate in the inevitable interview with death and then with God. Just the way it's going to be. The produce gained by a fleshly endeavor it's predictably corruptible. And that same passage, Galatians chapter 5, just before we got to that point, which occasioned the point that he's making because it is a concluding type point. This I say, verse 16, walk in the Spirit. Stop. I meant to preach a lesson one time on walking. The walks in Ephesians. Everybody's preached that, I guess. And I thought to myself as I got the outline finished and I was reviewing it for my Sunday morning lesson and I thought to myself, you know, maybe I ought to look that word up and see what the word walk means. I did her. It changed my lesson completely. You have to know the terms, folks, and how they're used. To walk is not to run. To walk is not to skip. To walk means to proceed a step at a time. It means to keep on keeping on. Putting one foot in front of the other. Over. It means staying the course. Keep on plodding. He says, walk in the Spirit. Your motivation is the Spirit. And ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit. Your fleshly proclivities are at war with your moral stance all the time. They're at war with what you believe to be right. And the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things you would, but if you be led by the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest which are these. And he goes through those same things again. They all have to do with our fleshly inclinations. And then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. When you replace the old fleshly stuff, with a high feeling of good for everybody concerned, even your enemies. Then you're sowing to a higher source and you're walking a greater path. Joy. Peace. You know what everybody's looking for? Peace. Quiescence. Quietude. Long-suffering. Gentleness. Goodness. Faith. Meekness. Temperance. Against such there is no law. I wish some of my brethren would read that passage often. 
I wish some of my preaching better than read that passage more often. They that are Christ have crucified the flesh. Remember what he said over there in, in, in chapter 3 of, Col- of Colossians? Mortify, that's put to death. And, and he says, you have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Now, I want to make a final point in the lesson is yours. We read Romans chapter 1. I want you to dismiss the chapter mark. Without understanding, verse 31, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are not only worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Therefore, it's a connector. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doest the same things. We don't have to descend into a loblolly of ungodly filth to be guilty of the same things that are being done there. It is a matter of quality, not quantity. Skip down with me, please. Thou therefore, verse 21, which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Do we cheat on our income taxes? Do we take the misnomer and the change and keep the five dollar bill? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? We best be careful. Thou that sayest thou shalt not commit idolatry, but abhorrest, dost thou commit sacrilege? Are you worshiping something that is lower than what God is? You see, we can be guilty of these same things if we're not careful. And so let us be very, very cautious. Let us be very, very careful. Intellectualism generally has turned against God. And I'm afraid we're headed in the same direction if we're not careful. Let us teach our children. Let's read the Bible to them. Let's have them pray out loud and let's talk to them about God more than we talk with them about some green monster or some yellow fellow or some purple fellow. Let's make sure that our children are taught what is right so that when it comes time they will have their own faith because they certainly can't go to heaven on yours. Sensualism. A deadly disease in this society. Don't let culture manage you. You manage the culture. Because what's out there, folks, is a lot better than what's up here. Let us so live, so that when this is all over, you and me personally will embrace one another at heaven's door and said, do you remember the times in Dixon or Franklin? Do you remember the times in Washington? Do you remember the times other places? We'll know and we'll care and we'll love. It's hard, folks. But could I say something to you? It's worth it. Because, hear me carefully, if you miss heaven, You've just missed all there is. Would you come to Jesus tonight? If you're not a Christian, 
Come confess your faith. Take a stand against sin and ungodliness, against impiety, against irregularity and inconsistency. Come to Jesus. Give your life to Him. Say, I believe that Christ is the Son of God. And repent of all your sins and say, I'm going to do better. Confess your faith in Him and be baptized. And if you're here and the culture's gotten you, saddled you, brought you into its grips and tentacles, come back. We'll pray for you. We're all unforgiven sinners just like you are. We're a fellowship of unforgiven, of forgiven sinners. Won't, won't you come back and be a part of us again? Whatever your duty to God, we beg with you to listen carefully as we sing, make your heart right with God while we stand and sing. <laughs>